Colossians chapter 2. I got it right this time. <laughs> Let's pray together. Lord, it is amazing to me that you make it possible for it to be well with our soul. We don't deserve that. And yet you make it possible. Lord, I pray this morning that you would deal with us in a special way. Pray that you would open your word to us, that you would help us to pay attention, that the distractions of our week uh, past and week coming would be set aside, that we would be able to sit uh, here at uh, with your Bible open in our hands, on our laps, that we would uh, engage with you in your word and that you would do your work in our hearts. Thank you for this opportunity that we have, that you love us and, and uh, treat us with such compassion and kindness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 2. You know, we spend quite a bit of time talking about the Apostle Paul. And uh, as I was preparing this, I was thinking about his motivation I was thinking about his life. You know, my family moved around quite a bit and we did different stuff. And and that that comes with, you know, some issues <laughs> that go with it. It's it's difficult. It's a difficult life. You're away from family, you're away from the familiar, and you're always moving. You're going to different places. And I wonder about his his motivation. And, uh, and then I was reminded of the, the paragraph that comes before ours today. It starts in 124 and goes to the end of, of chapter 1 there where we see a picture of Paul's heart and what was going on in his heart and how much he labored for these people how much he loved these people and um he would pray for them he would he would send messengers when he could he would go and visit them when he could he would write letters that end up in our in our bibles and i thought well i mean that's impressive it's very impressive and we could all be like that a little bit more but most of those churches or many of those churches he had visited or he had planted maybe or he knew, he knew the people there. They were familiar to him. When we were overseas, it was really comfortable for us to communicate with Parkside because we're, we were familiar with you guys. And here we have a letter with uh, Colossians written to people he didn't even know. He doesn't know the majority of people. He's never been there. And um, so I think it's very interesting to look at what his heart is like for a church he's never even visited. Think about a church... You know, we could we could name some church. Let's say a church in um, uh, Turkey. What's, where's the city the um, our missionaries in Turkey live? It's not Antalya. It's I, I can't remember. Anyways, the the capital city. Why well, can't I remember the capital city of Turkey? Not Istanbul. Anyway, huh? Ankara. Ankara. Wow, way to go. All right, Ankara. So let's say we've been supporting this church. We've been praying for them. How much actual agony would you enter into over that church that you've never been there? Right? I mean, it's, it's something that we can kind of pray for people and, and, and give and, and uh, you know, be involved in their lives and stuff like that. But I was very impressed with, with Paul loving this church in Colossae so much, and he's never even been there. He's never been to that valley. He's never visited those people. And uh, yet for him to have this kind of uh, heart for them is, uh, is a pretty impressive thing. Right there in, in verse 1, he starts talking about how he feels about these people. 
He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. His struggle. Now, the word struggle is is a, a word that has to do with athletics. It's uh, it's to, to, to compete, to to engage strenuously in, into what you're doing. And, uh, you know, many of you know that I, I, well, maybe you don't, I don't know. I ran a race last week, a 10K, with my friend Al Munoz. It's a dangerous thing to run with Al Munoz, I'll tell you. Because it was strenuous, and it was arduous, and he drugged me the whole way. And... <laughs> But that's the idea here, the struggle, you know, at about, about mile four when I was, you know, losing gas and uh, Al starts praying for me out loud, just praying for me for about a mile. And at first, you know, I admit I was like, oh, come on now, you know, like I was just frustrated because I was in the heat of battle, you know, and uh, after a while it was a really encouraging thing. Al's running along at, you know, at my pace, praying out loud for me. And it was that that carried me on. But that's the idea that Paul has here, the struggle. He's engaged. He's He's straining, he's striving, he, he wants to bring about something in the lives of the Colossians, and, and he's, he's involved, he's engaged in it. Now, he's in prison somewhere, right? He's not in Colossae, so how can he be engaged in what's going on in Colossae? He wasn't sending emails, right? He wasn't texting, he wasn't on the phone. How, how was he engaged in what was going on there? Well, he was engaged in what was going on there because he was in prayer for them. He was sending... Uh, people to them, messengers to them, and receiving them from them. He sat down and wrote a letter that we now have in our Bible. So he was engaged in what was going on. He, he was concerned. He wasn't just sitting back watching it on the news. He was concerned about what was going on. I like that, that athletic uh, comparison to the word struggle. Because um, it's, it's, it's the word, well, Woody mentioned it last week actually, it's the word, uh, we get the word agony from it. Uh, agon is, is what it is in Greek, and, and it's, a, it's, it's, an, it's an intense, intense thing. And that's what Paul had for these people. And what was he trying to accomplish? What was he struggling to do? What was he hoping to see happen in their lives? Well, he tells us there, I'm going to read verses uh, 2 and 3 together. He says already in verse 1, he has this great struggle. He says in verse 2, he struggles for them that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures and of wisdom and knowledge. So the first thing that he wants them to, to experience is this encouragement in heart. He wants them to be encouraged. Now, when we say the word heart in our culture, in our language, often we think of emotions, right? The heart is the seat of the emotions, and that's kind of the, the way we tend to think about it. But in the Greek mindset, it was a little bit different. In, in the mindset of, uh, of Paul, it was a little bit different. The heart was the root of really your intellect, your mind. It was the root of your will, and it was the root of your emotions. So really, it was, it was kind of the, the central core of who you were. So he wasn't just saying to them that, I, you know, I really hope that you have a great day. You know, I, I want you to be encouraged in heart. I hope your emotions are, are on an upswing this week. That's not what he's praying for them. He, he wants them to be encouraged from deep down within their heart. Now, this, this word encouraged is interesting also. It's, it's almost the word strengthen. It's, it's not exactly comfort. 
it's somewhere between comfort and strengthen. But what he wants them to do is he wants them to be re-energized. He wants them to be built up and strengthened in their own hearts, in their own lives, so that they can continue on, so that they can press on. Another athletic illustration, we, when, if we say a, a player has great heart, what do we mean? When we say that, we usually mean that this player, regardless of adversity, regardless of the situation, is going to play through, is going to press on, will not stop until it's done, right? We'll, we'll keep on no matter what the body says, no matter what the scoreboard says, we'll keep on and press on to the end, right? We say they have heart. And that's what he wants them to have. He prays that they would be strengthened, that they would be encouraged in heart, that the very seat of who they are would be motivated, would be re-energized. And he goes beyond that. He says he wants them to be united in love. Knit together is what it says. Knit together. like a, the, He uses the same word in a, a little bit later in, in verse 29 of, of chapter 2. And there, excuse me, not 29, 19 of chapter 2. He says there that what he uh, what he's talking about is like it's the picture of of your skin and your body knit together woven together in an intimate tight way right he's talking about ligaments and joints and muscle and things put together that's how closely tied together he wants them to be he wants them to be united in love so that they wouldn't be off on their own so that they wouldn't be thinking bad thoughts about one another that they would be united that they would be together that they would be encouraged and have their hearts strengthened and that they would be together, united in love. And that's a common theme. We see that, that theme all throughout uh, the New Testament. And actually in chapter 3 and verse 11 of Colossians here, he says, here, that is in the body of Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. And is in all. And so the distinctions, the differences that we have with one another, that we recognize, that in the body of Christ, they're not really there. He wants us to be united. He wants us to be encouraging one another. He wants us to be putting aside things like disunity and grumbling and strife and division and the, the, the ongoing grudges that we carry against one another. Sometimes we carry them so long we can't even remember how, we, how they started, but we've still got them. And we're going we're gonna to keep them, right? He says, put all of that stuff away. All that stuff divides. You need, you need to put it away. He struggles. He labors for them that they would be united in love. He also says he wants them to be rich in understanding. I, I like the, the phrasing that he uses there. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. That's, that's not a way we normally talk, right? That's a big, long you know, phrase that's, that's pretty interesting. But the idea of riches, that there's wealth, there's very great wealth there, uh, of assurance, of understanding that in Christ there is understanding of the world as it really is. In Christ there is understanding of ourselves as we really are. Because often we go through life not knowing who we really are, not understanding ourselves. If, if you ask the average person on the street, do they think they're a good person? What's the answer going to be? Yes. The Bible teaches us otherwise. The Bible teaches us there's something different going on. That actually we're depraved in heart. We're not as evil as we could be, but we're, 
we're tainted all the way through. We're, we're depraved all the way through. And so the Bible teaches us true understanding about who we are, true understanding about life and about one another and about how we can know God. And that's one of the things that Paul is laboring. He's struggling that these Colossians would have that. He wants them to have that understanding. Kind of reflects back on what, what he said here in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He said, So from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So this idea of understanding, of thinking, of knowing what the world is really like and what God is really like and what his word is really like and how we can know God, understanding that is a valuable thing and it's located in Christ. Something I've noticed over, uh, over the years in, in, the, in the church, not just in America, but since we're here, I'll talk about this church, not, not this church, I mean the church in America. There's a, there's a sense in which very um, well-meaning Christians who love Jesus and want to obey him, they, they, they think that if they begin to pursue intellectual, intellectual pursuits about God and the Bible, that they will be pigeonholing God and actually be shrinking their view of who God is. And so that there's a sense in which for, for a lot of people, there's a, a tension between I can either know God personally and obey him and love him, or I can study about him and learn about him. It's either or. And it's, it's, a, it's an idea called anti-intellectualism. It's, it's, it's wanting to be obedient to Christ, which is a good thing. It's wanting to know Christ, which is a good thing. It's wanting to walk your life in obeying him, following after him. That's a good thing. But it's a false dichotomy thinking that we can't therefore study about him and study his word and understand this salvation that we have, understand who Christ is and what he means. And so I, I, I have a, an example up here of someone. This is um, volume 16 of a, a series by a guy named John Owen. This is the, the works of John Owen. This is volume 16. So I've got the, the other 15. I don't, however, have his seven-volume commentary on Hebrews. Seven-volume. Yeah, it's like this. <laughs> That's a serious commentary, right? Because he loved God and his word so much. He was born in 1616. And uh, he's, he's been discipling me for a while. But he loved Jesus as much as anybody I know. And he obeyed Jesus as much as anybody I know. And yet he took time out of his life to write 16 volumes about how to know God, about who God is, about our relationship with him, about the Holy Spirit, about the spiritual life, about all different aspects of, of life because he thought we're supposed to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We're supposed to love him with our mind. And I think that's a little bit of what Paul is talking about here. He wants them to be to have deep intellectual roots into who God is, understand the Bible well and have a grasp on it. It's like an anchor that keeps you from being blown away. He's very concerned that the Colossians will reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. And then he sort of gives a, a summary of, or a restatement of what he meant by that final point. 
He says, I want you to know Christ. I want you to know him, to really know him, to walk with him, to understand who he is, to understand what he means, to understand what he's all about, to understand what he teaches, to have a relationship with him, to know Christ, who is the mystery of God. Now, the word mystery typically means something that's kind of unknown or possibly unknowable. It's kind of, um, well, mysterious, you know probably is mysterious if it's if it's mystery but that that's the idea that we have is it's something maybe unknowable it's it's like fog you can't you don't really know what's there you kind of have an idea but you're not really sure but in the bible the word mystery is is almost a technical term it means something that was presented in the old testament but it was kind of forms and shadows like not real clear what it was it was sort of foreshadowing of what was to come and then you get to the new testament and the mystery has been revealed it's it's been made known And he says right here that it's been made known in the person of Christ. That these things, the promises, all the the things that were talked about from the Old Testament, about what was going to come, what was going to happen, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. There's a verse that I want to direct you to. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 20 says that all of the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Everything. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. He is central. He is central. He's not just one member of the Godhead that that we talk about. He's not just uh, something that, that we call ourselves Christians. He's not just one part of the Christian life or not just one part of how we understand God. He is the mystery of God. And he goes on and he says, not, not only is he the mystery of God, but he is also the treasure trove of all wisdom and knowledge. It's located in Christ. That's what he says there in verse 3. He says, In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, it doesn't mean hidden like secreted away so you can't get to it, right? It's not behind lock and key. It's not It's not hidden somewhere in the house so you can't find it. When he says hidden, it's it's a word that means that it's it's located, These things are located. They're to be found in him. They've been deposited in him. It's like he's a treasure chest. And that's where all the good stuff is located, is in that treasure treasure chest. That's who Jesus is. Now, some of you are a little bit like me. You know, some of us are eggheads by nature. Um, I just love to learn and study and read and think about these things. And and that's just... I'm an egghead. I'm just an egghead. And some of you guys are like that too, and and great. <laughs> um, but I don't want us to think that, that, that that's what Paul is talking about here. He's not just talking about getting a pile of information about God, a pile of deductions from Scripture about who God is. But it's all connected with relationship with him. The idea is that we can understand and know and therefore relate to him in a better way because we understand him in a better way we understand ourselves in light of who he is and we can relate to him understand him know him in a better in a better way we're grounded in a new way that that we aren't uh, without that there could be no appreciation of divine wisdom apart from this personal knowledge of him We're not talking about accumulating data. We're talking about a personal relationship that leads us into true spiritual wisdom and knowledge of God. 
Proverbs says several times, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the very beginning. And now that we're in the New Testament, all things find their fulfillment in Christ. He is the beginning of wisdom. He is the beginning of knowledge. You want to have true knowledge? You want to have true wisdom? Pursue Christ because it's located in him. It's like a treasure chest and it's not locked. You can get there, but it's contained in him. All right, so that's Paul's struggle. Now, what about his goal? What's the ultimate thing he's trying to accomplish? Well, he says that he, he labors for these people that they be not deceived. Verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, that no one may deceive you. He doesn't want them to be deceived, to be led astray. And he talks about one of the tactics that they're going to use to do this is persuasive speech. They're going to give real slick presentations. I remember the first time uh, Stephanie and I were still living in Chicago and we turned on the TV and there was this preacher on TV. I'd never heard of the guy before. And he was slick. He talked the whole time and it was just, he doesn't talk like me. He like, you know, has good grammar and flow and it's entertaining and the whole thing. And I was listening to the guy and I thought, this guy is really, really good. And as I listened for about 10 minutes... I realized I didn't want anything to do with what he was selling. He was really good, but I didn't, I didn't want it. I didn't want what he had. So it was very persuasive. It was an excellent presentation. It looked really good, and it was a slick environment. It was the kind of thing that you would gravitate towards. But as you listened, you, you found that there was something lacking. There was something lacking in, in what he was teaching. And that's what these people are trying to do the false teachers that, that were coming in to, to invade, in a sense, the Colossian church. They were going to lead people astray, and they were going to sound really good while they were doing it. That's a big part of how they bring that about, is by sounding really good. Now, I want to contrast this with something that's said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Flip over there, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter two, verses one through five. Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul, in a sense, is reminding the Colossians, the gospel is not about a slick presentation. It's about substance. It is real, and it's really there. You can get your hands on it, you can feel it, you can play with it, you can hold it in your hands, you can examine it. It's real and there's substance. It's not just a slick presentation. And by the way, for those of us who share the gospel occasionally and are afraid that we don't really have the best presentation, this is encouragement. This is huge encouragement, particularly from, from 1 Corinthians 2 there. He says, the gospel that we presented to you there wasn't a lot of fanfare. There wasn't anything slick. It was just in demonstration of the Spirit 
and power. Why? So that you would trust in the spirit of God and not trust in the wisdom of men. So that you would look to God. And so when we're sharing the gospel, do the best you can. Do the best you can. If it's not slick, that's fine. The gospel presented to me was not slick. I'll tell you that. It was not. It was hardly coherent. <laughs> it should be coherent. But it doesn't have to be slick, which is a good thing for all of us. So he, he wants them not to be deceived, and the deceivers are going to use persuasive speech. He moves on, though, in verse 5, back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So he makes an assessment of them. He's, he's heard reports, and he's going to tell them kind of what he thinks about the situation that they're in. What's, it, what's his assessment of them? First of all, he says, I'm, I'm absent in the body, but I'm present. I'm really there. I'm really there. I think back to the, the image of us praying for a church in Ankara, Turkey. We don't know them. We couldn't picture them. wouldn't pick, pick them out of a crowd unless they spoke and it came out Turkish. We might pick them out then. But we, we don't know them. We, we're not there. Most of us probably, probably most of us have never been there. But Paul says, though it's the same situation in, in Colossae, I'm in prison back in Rome and you're in, in Colossae, the church there. Still, I am engaged in what's going on. I am with you. And not just with you because I'm thinking about you. <clears throat> he, says, he says, I'm actually with you. The, the idea there is that he's, he's on the ground involved in what's going on somehow, even though he's physically removed. He, he has a, a role to play in influencing the outcome of the situation that's going on there in Colossae. Now, how could he actually do that? Well, I don't believe in anything you know, weird. He wasn't in two places at once or anything like that. But because the Holy Spirit who dwelt in him is the same Holy Spirit who dwells in the believers in Colossae. When he goes into prayer, he can actually influence what's going on there in Colossae, even though he's never been there. That it's the same spirit. That actually the Christ that he is a member of, he's one in Christ, he's united in Christ and wants them to be united in Christ, that's the same Christ. And so when he's in prayer, when he's, when he's pleading with God to do something in this situation in Colossae, it's like he's actually there. There's actually a benefit. There's actually an outcome. And this was challenging to me in regard to prayer because I tend to think of prayer as sort of, you know, if there's a situation going on over here, I think of prayer as me talking to God about this situation. And so I, I get this picture of the communication between God and me here, right? And I forget that God actually responds to prayer and is involved in what's going on here. He actually does that. And so the communication isn't just from me to him saying, oh, I wish you'd do something. He actually does something, and he gets involved and works there. And so Paul is able to say here, even though he's never been to Colossae, I'm there, I am with you. I'm absent in the body, of course. I'm locked up in jail, chained to some Roman guard. But I'm with you. I'm involved in what's going on there. And so I think it's a strong encouragement for prayer for us, to be involved in prayer, that we're not just sending up messages like putting something in a bottle and throwing it away. Or putting it on a balloon and it floats off and you don't know where it goes. We are talking to the God of the universe who is sovereign in this situation there in Colossae. And that's encouraging to me. 
And that's what Paul says after looking at their situation. He says, I'm, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. He's encouraged. He's encouraged in this situation. It seems like this message that was trying to infiltrate the church there was still on the outside threatening. It wasn't mixed in with the body and confusing what they already knew. It seems like the idea is that it's the threat is still out there. The church is holding strong. And he says, I'm encouraged about you. I'm encouraged. I rejoice because you're standing firm. Because you're strong. You're doing well. You're doing well. The heresy was still outside the church. It wasn't inside it yet. All right, so that's a review or an overview, I guess, of Colossians 2, 1 through 5. Now, what does this have to do with us? Last week, we took a really informal survey or poll or whatever, very informal. We had 146 people answer. And so I don't know how many abstentions there were or whatever, but we had 146 people answer. And I want to I go through, just let you see kind of what, what sort of answers were given. First of all, talk about encouraging. 99% of people who responded said that they had made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ that was still important in their lives. So of the 146 people that answered, 99% said that. That's impressive. I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged. That's an exciting thing. This one's, this one's incredible too. 88% said they had been baptized, had responded in obedience by being baptized. That's also pretty cool. A great deal. So encouraging, very encouraging. I, I didn't know what kind of numbers to expect. I didn't think about this one. Uh, but 88%, that's pretty impressive. 77% said they have a daily prayer time. 77% of us have a daily prayer time. I found that to be encouraging too. That's a, that's a lot of people praying. and God does answer prayer, doesn't he? 53% said that they have a daily Bible reading time. Now that's encouraging too. It kind of depends on how you're looking at it exactly. I don't know if I was being pessimistic. I was expecting less. I, I, I don't know why, but when I saw this number, I thought 53% are had giving, getting daily intake from God's word. I, I'm encouraged that people are getting a daily intake of God's word. And this one blew me away. 63% said that sometime in the last four months, they'd shared the gospel. That blew me away. That really did. That really did. So that's encouraging. I find that to be super encouraging. That one right there uh, caught me off guard more than more than any of the others. Now, here's where we start getting a different tone, though. 11% said they agreed with this statement. God is satisfied if a person lives the best life he can. And several verses pop into my head immediately about that, but... I want to press on. I know we're going to, we're going to bring this up and, and talk about it at a later time. But 11% agreed with that and said, yeah, that's, that, that's what, that's what make God, makes God happy is when we do the best we can, live the best life we can. So 11% said that. 16% agreed with this one. The way to be connected to and accepted by God is to try sincerely to live a good life. 16%. So the number went up. 16% said, yeah, that's, that's the way to be connected to God. To be acceptable to God is to try sincerely to live a good life. And again, several verses from the New Testament pop into my mind. And I think about things that have been said from the pulpit up here, things that, that I've said and, and others have said. And, 
and try and work those two ideas together that 16% agreed with this statement and then reflecting on, on what's been said from the pulpit. And so that one got my attention. And this one even more so maybe. The main emphasis of the gospel is God's rules for right living. 18% said, yeah, yeah, that's right. Main emphasis of the gospel is God's rules for right living. And so that's our assessment without too much commentary for me. I know there's some there, but, but these, are, these are the results of the poll or the survey or whatever that we took last week. And some of it's extremely encouraging. And yet somehow the numbers in my mind don't seem to match up. 99% said, said yeah, I've, I've trusted Christ in a, in a, in a meaningful way that's, that still has meaning today. And yet 18% said, yeah, well, the main emphasis of the gospel is God's rules for right living. So there seems to be a disconnect there. Some, something's not meeting up. And uh, so we're going we're gonna to have to work on that. And that, and that concerns me. And it, I know it concerns the rest of the elders too. All right. So we looked at our assessment, just like we looked at Paul's assessment. And in general, we're very encouraged in general. There are some details that are very important that we need to get worked out. We need to talk about what is the gospel. We need to figure out and understand how a person can be made right with God. That is essential. That's essential. Our goal as an elder board, like Paul's, is that you wouldn't be deceived or deluded by any kind of plausible-sounding argument that is contrary to the gospel contained in the Bible. He says in Colossians 1, verse 28, it says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's our goal. And so, as leadership, when we look at the results of our poll and we look at what our goal is, we realize that we have some areas that we need to pursue. We have some gaps we need to fill in. We have some things we need to, be, to, to strengthen. And so we're going to do that. We intend to do that. And the core of it has to do with the gospel. What is the gospel? How can, how can a, a sinful person like me be made right with God? We're going to talk about that. And finally, our struggle, our struggle. We looked at Paul's struggle. What's our struggle? Well, in a similar way, we pray for all of you, and we try to bring this about. We labor to make this happen. We struggle on your behalf that you would be encouraged and that God would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's what we seek for you guys. That's what we labor for. That's what we pray for. That's what we work for. The decisions we make, that is a major, major part of our struggle for you guys. Secondly, we pray and labor for you all that you would be knit together in love. We want to see the whole body here at Parkside working together in harmony and in love to show Christ to one another and to show the gospel to the world outside. Jesus said, by this, they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so there's an emphasis on unity. There's an emphasis on being unified in love for one another. There's a picture in the world of the church, an idea, a conception of the world, or of the church in the world, that says that those Christians, they're just always infighting. They can't get along. And a lot of that just comes from the fact that the world hates the church. A big part of that is that. But it's also... A little bit of it, true. We do infight. We argue with each other. And like family, we can be really 
harsh to one another and, and separate and divide. But that's our second struggle is that you be knit together in love. Thirdly, we pray and agonize and teach that you would reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding. We pray with Paul in Ephesians that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what we desire for you. We desire that you would grow in your understanding of who God is and how to relate to him, that you would grow in your understanding of what he's given us in his word that teaches us about us, that teaches us about one another, about him and how to relate to him, teaches us about the world outside and how to relate to that world. We struggle to that end for you all. And then fourthly, ultimately all that we do here is so that you may know Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He's the mystery of God. He alone is the treasure chest where you can find true spiritual wisdom and understanding. 1 Corinthians one twenty three says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. As I thought about our situation, as I thought about the labor that we have, the struggle that, that, that we have, that we're all struggling together to follow after him, the, the things that, that Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he said, I want you guys to have these things in order. I want you to know these things. I want these things to be true in you. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be unified. I want you to grow in understanding. I want you to know Christ, who's the treasure trove of all wisdom, right? He says, I want you to have those things. And I, I thought about our situation, and I thought about potential things that might arise where uh, deception could creep in or threaten. And I thought, if we don't have these things in order, if you are not encouraged, if you're not encouraged, you feel like, you know, I can't really cut this. I can't really do this Christian life thing. I just, I don't measure up. You feel like that and you think, well, you know, I guess I'll keep trying for a while. You, you remain discouraged. And then after a while, you just say, you know what? I tried that. It doesn't work for me because I don't measure up or it's wrong or whatever. And because of your discouragement, you ditch the whole thing. Or you move away and isolate yourself. I don't, you know, the rest of those Christians at Parkside, they, they read their Bible and stuff. And, uh, you know, they talk to other people about Jesus and I'm, I'm not into that. Or they seem like they've got it all together on a Sunday morning. And I know I'm a wretch and I don't have it together on a Sunday morning. And so we feel, we feel isolated, right? We're discouraged and now we're isolated and we've, you know, we've, we feel like we're alone in the midst of a crowd. And that, in that kind of a situation, when, when deception comes in, when something that would lead you away comes in, you're susceptible. You're vulnerable. Because you're not content with your relationship with the Lord anyway. You're not encouraged. And these people, they don't care about you anyway. And so it's real easy just to slip and disappear. Just disappear. And thirdly, he talks about growing in wisdom and the knowledge of God. Riches of full assurance of understanding is what he says. Riches of full assurance and understanding. If, if you are weak in that, if you've never spent time trying to, trying to scour through the Bible and figure out who is this Jesus anyway, 
if you've never tried to understand who you are in his eyes, if you've never dug in and scoured through all the riches that he offers to see what's there, you don't really have a foundation to stand. And so if someone comes along and presents something that's a little bit skewed, a little bit off, you don't know the difference because you've never dug in for yourself. You've never, you've never gone all the way in to, to see what the Bible has to tell you, has to offer. And so you're weak. You're, you're vulnerable. You're weak-minded. And so that's another situation where Paul is trying to shore that weakness up. That if, if, you don't, if you don't understand what we have in Christ, if you don't understand the riches that's to be found, you're vulnerable. You're in battle with no armor. And how long are you going to last? Probably not long. And finally, if we don't know Christ, who is the treasure trove of all wisdom and understanding, if we don't know him, really get to know him as he is, know him in a relational way, when I'm doing great and praise you, Lord, when I'm doing awful and, Lord, I'm a sinner, when, if we don't know Christ, if we don't have that relationship with him developed, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to a false Christ being presented or a false gospel or some other road being presented. We're vulnerable. We're weak. So if these things aren't in order, we've got problems. We've got problems. And so one of the things that we as a church here at Parkside do to try and remind ourselves of these things is the Lord's table. The Lord's table deals with all of these issues that we talked about today. And this is where we come to celebrate and rejoice and remember the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. This is where we're reminded of the gospel. One of the weaknesses, when, when I looked through our assessment there, our, our survey that we did, one of the, one of the things that was a, a little bit frightening to me almost was this one and the other two that are like it, that 18% don't really know what the emphasis of the gospel is. Don't really know what the heart of the gospel is. And this is about the gospel. When we, when we come to the Lord's table, let's, let's come on up, men, and we'll, we'll serve it.